from the Bible and you feel like you're about to dive into an ocean that has no bottom to it because there is just so much. And um, I want to pause for a minute and uh, take, uh, take a moment to, to pray before we do that. Lord God, we are astounded when we look at this passage and get a um, grasp, a clearer grasp of who it is that you are. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for your presence in this world, your presence with us. We pray, Lord God, for a fuller revelation of who it is that you are. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. I had a conversation with um, one of our younger members uh, reflecting on how absolutely mishugi things have become. That it takes what happened uh, Sunday to really shake us up because so much else has become almost uh, mundane. You know, the notion that some uh, absolutely uh, crazy individual would take upon themselves uh, to burst into a, uh, a shopping mall with a gun and blast a bunch of people, that, that has long ceased to be um, shocking for people. And that um, what happened Sunday has been so disconcerting that that's what people have been talking about all week. Uh, anytime you turn on any kind of news, people are trying to dissect every aspect of, of who this guy was um, and why he did what he did and all of that. I mean, it, it, mind, it boggles my mind that something like that finally takes, gets people's attention and shakes them up. Uh, because there's no apparent motive, there's no footprint uh, in social media, no suicide note. Uh, this is a successful businessman, retired businessman, uh, looks like a, a millionaire, uh, who has been planning this to one degree or another for, for some 20 years or more. And uh, now we find out that he's been traveling all over the world and taking cruises and, you know, how it is inquiring minds want to know and people want to connect the dots. Well, did he connect with the, uh, uh, with ISIS, with Al-Qaeda and so on and so forth? And uh, what dawned on me that we tend to focus and obsess with the wrong things, and that we focus and obsess about the wrong person. And as I was reflecting on Sukkot and thinking about uh, what happened in uh, Last Wages, <laughs> I couldn't help but think of another person 
um, who came and in such a way that people's attention was dramatically changed. And um, if you were here for Kol Nidre, Yom Kippur Eve service, we read from Hebrews chapter 1, where the writer states the following, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. In other words, what the writer in the letter to the first century Messianic Jews was saying that God will do whatever it, it takes to get a hold of people's attention. And, and we have such a limited notion of who God is, we tend to put him in a box that basically says God will only communicate if the music is playing and if we are in precisely the right frame of mind. Well, I have news for you. I, for one, am grateful that God is able to communicate with someone like me because he has wired me and he knows what makes me tick and he can speak in my language as he can with each one of us. Um, however, people don't always get it. And people were not getting it in the first century. Um, they've not been getting who Yeshua is ever since then. And the chapter or the section that Bix read to us emphasizes just who Yeshua is. Now, I realize it's a very familiar passage, and it's something that typically t is brought out or trotted out um, around the very special holidays. And it often goes something like this. This speaks about the incredible majesty and the deity of who Yeshua is. And it was something that was written by John in order to counter uh, heresies that were um, very common in those days. Heresies having to do with a false understanding of who Yeshua is. You had a couple of different forms of it. The one form basically says that Yeshua was nothing more than a man upon whom the Spirit of God, the spark of divinity, supposedly came at, when he was immersed, and that when he died, uh, the, the divinity kind of rose and went away, and all you had was a, the uh, dead uh, body of another human being. That was one version of it. Another version put it this way, that Yeshua was God, and that he took on a human form, sort of like, like a set of clothing, and then he shed it. And it's like anything else, folks. When we come to God, um, we endeavor to put God in a box and explain him via sound bites. The basic problem is, if God is who he is, uh, the ultimate mystery of the universe, the creator of the universe. And if God's brain, so to speak, is hugely greater than our brain, 
then our attempts at explaining who God is are limited by definition. And there's no shame in saying, I understand this much about God. And then there's so much more about God that I don't understand on this life. Again, there's no shame in that. It's part of the mystery. In fact, for me, at this stage in my life, I'm quite comfortable in saying that who God is is a mystery to me because God pulls back the curtains enough to reveal who he is, enough so that I know who he is and so that I can carry out what he has commissioned me to do. And by the way, this is what, what the Torah makes it very clear in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, that the secret things belong to God, the mysteries belong to God, but the things that have been revealed belong to us. Why? So that we would sit back and cogitate and pontificate and speculate and glory and how clever we are? No. Those things are revealed to us so that we would basically follow and obey what God has given us to do. We don't like that because we want to presume that we understand a lot more than we do. On one hand, on the other hand, we also feel like we will obey as much as we feel is appropriate, as much as feels comfortable to us. And uh, neither one of those are great options. So in any event, John, uh, probably about 50 or so years after Yeshua, Yeshua's departure from this world physically, is endeavoring to say to people, let me give you a clue about who Yeshua was and is. And reality is, especially in this chapter, but throughout other chapters in, uh, in, this, uh, in this gospel, in this record, a lot of what John tells us is way above and beyond our ability to get our arms around. And it's okay. Again, we recognize that there are some things we understand and some things we do not. But part of what makes me chuckle sometimes is that especially this section is presented as if John was a nice Greek philosopher who is explaining who Yeshua is to a bunch of fellow Greeks. And I realize at this point that the audience that are reading this book are probably a mixture, maybe a lot of folks who are from diverse background, from Greek and Roman, etc., etc. However, who was John? Yohanan, by the way, was his given name, which means God is merciful or God has given mercy. And like Yeshua and his disciples, every single Shabbat, when Shabbat morning came, When Shabbat morning came, do you think that he had to agonize and say, well, let's see, it's a beautiful day. What am I going to do today? No. Shabbat morning came. He went to, to, to the synagogue. And what did they do in the synagogue? Unlike what we do here, which is relatively uh, abbreviated, uh, they would go through the Torah portion and then read from the prophets and then have someone who would translate 
uh, into and, and give a paraphrase into uh, Aramaic, the Targum, and then sometimes have someone who would stand up or sit down, actually. You would read the Torah and prophets standing, then you'd sit down, and then they would give some kind of a homily or an explanation. It was a long, long service. So in any event, John's mind is conditioned not by Greek philosophy, but by the Torah and the prophets. And so John begins by saying, in the beginning, and of course people are inclined to say, whoa, you know, this is going back to the um, mystery of the universe and how it was fashioned and how the Greeks thought about the universe and etc. Well, he was a Jew when he says, in the beginning, what comes to mind? Bereshit. This goes right back to another beginning kind of passage, and that is, of course, Genesis 1.1. And what's John's point? John's point, right off the bat, is to say Yeshua is someone whose existence goes way back before, before creation. Bereshit bara Elohim et It's a beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then the next phrase speaks about the word. Now, in Greek, this word is logos. And, of course, there was a um, philosophical concept in Greek thinking that said that the logos was the governing principle of the universe. Well, that was true in Greek philosophy. However, when it comes to Scripture, this is not the governing principle of the universe, but the governing God of the universe. And, and this takes the reader, in particular it takes John, to Scripture that speaks about the Word of God being all-powerful and being a creative agent in how the, the world was, was shaped, specifically in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So in the first century, that notion was called the membra, which is Aramaic for a word, that described the power of God, the, God's ability to merely speak a word and see to it the things are fashioned. Through him were all things made, and without him was nothing made that had been made. And by the way, um, here what John is saying would have been considered on the part of some people to be absolutely scandalous, and still is on the part of many folks in the Jewish community, because John says that the Word was God. In other words, he doesn't mix, uh, he doesn't mix, mince his words here to say that this Word, this creative agent of God, was actually God Himself. Again, it's one of these mysteries that none of us can really fully adequately explain. And so part of the response on the part of folks in the Jewish community has been the fact that this sort of teaching 
is idolatrous because it speaks about polytheism. In other words, many gods. What I found fascinating is that in the last several years, there has been a Jewish scholar by the name of Rabbi Boyarin who states that this notion of Messiah being deity was actually around in the first century and was very Jewish. In other words, it was part of Jewish thinking. Not everybody, but on the part of significant elements of, in the Jewish community was something uh, uh, where people that were willing to say, you know, if Messiah would come and if he would bring about transformation and if he would bring about redemption, then he would have to be a lot more than an average ordinary human being who would be endowed with special powers. In other words, he would need to be God. Now, exactly how all that works, we can sit here until the cows come home and try to give a nice, full theological explanation. And at the end of the day, we have to say, parts of it we understand, parts of it we do not understand, and we're fine with that. Uh, unfortunately, part of what happens as time goes on, you can imagine the people are not content with that, and they say, we will give a perfect explanation for what that is about, and you have the councils, the various church councils that define the nature of God and so on and so forth, and with all due respect to these great theologians, I have to tell you that I'm somewhat skeptical because at the end of the day, there are things we understand, there are things we don't understand, and since we're not God, we have to say, I'm fine with that. So, John goes on then to speak about Yeshua, about the Word being the light of the world. Now, where did that come from? Was that also some kind of mystical notion? No. Folks, um, John sat under Yeshua's teaching. And Yeshua, on a number of occasions, at, at least in this one situation, spoke very clearly about the fact that he was the light of the world. Now, he was either absolutely Meshuggi and needed to be hauled off, or he was a great charlatan, or he meant what he said. On Sukkot, the last day of Sukkot, Yeshua spoke to the people who were gathered at the temple, the pilgrims, and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if one of us were to stand up and were to say that, I think the rest of us would justifiably say, okay, where is the van that would take this, this person to the nut house? And by the way, part of the, the, the context here was that on Sukkot, not, not only in Hanukkah, but on Sukkot, Sukkot was the festival of lights in the very beginning. And there were huge candelabras, and you could see the light from the Temple Mount area from miles away. So when Yeshua stands up and says, I am the light of the world, not these huge candelabras, but I am the light of the world, 
he is making a very distinct point. And so John, as he is reflecting about 50 or 60 years later about Yeshua, remembers what he did and what he had to say back then. And I want to skip down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, again, for a first century reader, this, this is uh, shocking and it's somewhat like like a person scratching their fingernails on a, I was going to say blackboard, and there are no longer blackboards, whiteboards. The fact that God would take on human flesh, not just on occasion as was the case before, where we see in the Tanakh and the Old Testament a number of examples where God shows up and he has a meal with people Abraham, a classic example. And then he gets up and has a visit with Abraham and then he leaves. And Abraham knows that the one he was talking to was God. Now again, it's a mystery. The rabbis really don't quite know what to do with that. But the notion that God would somehow become flesh it's tough for us to get our arms around. And we can obsess with that or else we can get the message as was pointed out to us earlier in the Dash by Joanne. That the issue here, that the issue here is that God wants to hang out with us. God wants to hang out in our sukkah. Because the Greek word... Um, uh, that's translated made his dwelling among us is connected to the word shachan or mishkan or shechina that means to dwell, to hang out with people. And this, folks, is what God has been interested in doing from way back, from the time that Adam and Eve blew it and had to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden and the relationship between God and man was, was severed or, or hindered. God has always been working to bring about a change so that a relationship between him and people would be strengthened and would be restored. And God said to the people of Israel, when he gave instructions about how to construct the tabernacle, he said, have them make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. V'shachanti betocham. And this is part of God's heart, folks, is for him to have that kind of relationship with people. And, and we have just snatches of it. Enough to give us a greater hunger to dwell together, to hang out with God. And by the way, John here, as he's thinking about this, remembers the time when he and James and, and uh, Peter were up in the mountain. 
And all of a sudden, Yeshua is transfigured, it transformed, and, and he, he shines just like Moses did. And of course, Peter, being impetuous Peter that he was, says, uh, Oh, Lord, uh, if you want, I'll make you, um, let's make three Sukkot here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then a bright light comes from heaven and envelops uh, Yeshua and, and Moses and Elijah. And a voice comes from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I love. So at this point, Peter gets it. He understands the fact that, okay, Peter, this really isn't about you. God really doesn't need your help. And um, you just sit and enjoy this, this situation. What does this mean, only begotten? It's one of these lovely um, phrases. It's nice, nicely theological that we really don't understand. Other than to say that it has to do with the one and only. The one who is very special. In other words, all of us are sons and daughters of God to one degree or another. But Yeshua is the Son of God. And this is, of course, also takes us back to the Torah, to the time when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, and the angel said to him, no, stop. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, again, remember, at this point, Abraham had more than one son. But the point of the angel was that Isaac was the truly unique and set-apart son, which is what is, is being said about Yeshua. Again, another, another indication that what John has in mind here is a picture of Yeshua that comes straight out of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And then finally, I want to park on the fact that John describes Yeshua as someone who is full of grace and truth. Now, where does that come from? Well, also, I, I found it very intriguing that this, this is part of the Torah portion that was described today, earlier, that God put Moses behind a rock, zipped in front of him, proclaimed his attitudes, his character, and so on. And part of the description is that he is full of grace and truth. I find that intriguing, to say the least, because what John is clearly saying here, that in his mind, Yeshua is clearly deity. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Just like the Father has grace and truth, He's merciful, He's compassionate, He's full of loving kindness and faithfulness and truth, the same thing is true of Yeshua. And at least for me, the bottom line of all of this is that this Yeshua has been described as He is. What's hugely important for him and on his plate 
is the fact that he wants to hang out with our sukkah. Now, the movie that's been referred to, Ushpizin, and again, I'll toss in my uh, encouragement for you to see it if you haven't. Ushpizin comes from Aramaic um, that, that means special guests. And according to the mystical Judaism, uh, each time Jewish people celebrate Sukkot, then they have special Ushpizin, uh, and they are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, and David. And for us, the greatest ushpiz, singular, is of course Yeshua. And we're humbled. We're humbled, folks. When you recognize who you are and who God is, what kind of an attitude can you have other than to say, Wow, God, who am I that you should want to hang out with me? And this is not self-deprecation to, to where we put ourselves down and say, I'm, I am a hair above a snake or an earthworm. I mean, you can do that. It, it doesn't really add much to your uh, emotional and psychological well-being. But the point simply is, you know who you are and your stuff. And if you understand who God is and His holiness, you realize that there is a huge gulf between you. And yet you realize that this greatest Ushpiz wants to come out and hang out with you. Here are his words. Look, listen. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to his house and share a meal with him and he with me. In other words, I will bring my dish and, and have this potluck onig with you. Because I want to spend time with you. Folks, this is part of what has been God's desire and purpose from way back. Snatches of it have taken place when there was a tabernacle and a temple. But there will come a time when we will have that full bore without him, without hindrance, without any limitations. And I want to read to you from the end of the book what that's going to look like. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God, the mishkan of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. This is Revelation 21. 3 and then uh, 21, 22. I did not see a temple in the city. That's kind of odd. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its light. What's the implication? The implication is that there will come a time, folks, when you and I can hang out with God without any limitations and without any hindrance. Can you envision that? I can't. You know, we come on Shabbat morning and as we worship the Lord in music and through the Torah service and through the message and whoever brings it, 
We have a palpable sense of the presence of God here, folks. Not because of this or the pots of clay, one of us here, but because somehow mystically God fulfills what he wants to do, and that is he wants to hang out with us. And I've had people say to me over and over again, you know, when I came here, I sensed the presence of God. Why? We come by faith and we say, God, would you please come? And he does. It's a mystery. We don't fully understand it. But we look forward to a time when that would be a reality that fills our screen 100%. And so our challenge today as we celebrate Sukkot, as we consider this festival, as we consider life with all the ups and downs, we want to simply stop and say, okay, God, somehow you're present. Somehow you're here. Somehow, you want to dwell with me, and I welcome that. And I'm going to be quiet for a change. And I'm going to listen. And would you please speak to me, and would you please be part of the space in which I'm in? And this is something that for each of us looks a little different. Some of us are more emotionally based, more spiritually based. Worship comes naturally. For others, what comes more natural is the cognitive, the mind. As we read the Word of God, somehow He communicates more clearly to us. My challenge is simply to say yes to both. The Shema tells us, love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your strength. Endeavor on this very special occasion to say, God, I want to worship you more fully, more completely, mind, heart, and strength. I want to hang out with you, and would you please come and hang out in my sukkah today? Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled, immensely humbled, that that is your heart's desire to dwell with us. That's been your desire from eternity past. We thank you, Lord God, for making a way for us to know you, to engage with who you are, to enjoy being in your presence. Thank you, Lord God, that you are our very supreme and very special ushpiz, the special guests. We pray, Lord God, for a fuller grasp, fuller appreciation, fuller devotion, Lord God, to seek your presence and to live life that is governed and defined not by who we are, not by the world around us, but first and foremost by you. 
We ask this, Lord, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. We'd like to ask you to take a moment to reflect on what you've been hearing today. Our expectation is that somehow in this process, God has been speaking through a variety of means. We just simply like to ask that you reflect on it, respond to His voice in however form it came, whether you do it at your seat or come up and pray with one of us. We'd love to pray with you. Then we'll conclude with the Kiddush in just a few minutes.